book of John, calling it the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. And every single week we've looked at a different aspect of Jesus, basically, and what he's done and who he has been and what he's been for people and what he's done for people. And so we'll just continue that thought. And stand, if you would, please, once more in honor to the word. If you would, please, we'll finish out this chapter today. Last week, Pastor marched through the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And it ended off in the strangest way in verse number 45. We'll read that again into the end of the chapter. And John chapter 11, and now verse 45. This is just John's firsthand account of his time with Jesus Christ. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God gave him these words to say about Jesus, but, um, but this, is, this is kind of his take on it and what God told him to write about it. And so verse number 45 says, Then, after Lazarus was raised from the dead and people saw him and all that, then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. Well, that's good. I should hope so after he raises somebody from the dead. But this is the part that's crazy. Some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and, and Pharisees a council and said, What do we do? For this man doth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it's expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he, not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. Not intentionally, but he said the words that John says, no, actually that was a prophecy, verse 52, and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Then from that day forth, they took counsel together for to put him to death. Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence into a country near the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand. And many went out into the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to, to purify themselves. And, and up to a week ahead of time, sometimes the purification had to take place for them to be able to take part in the Passover. And so there's people coming into town already for that early. Verse 56, Then sought they for Jesus and spake among themselves as they stood in the temple. What think ye? Will not come to the feast? Now, both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he was, he should show it, that they might take him. And so let's pray, and we'll kind of explain this, this text and the prophetic part of it as well. Let's pray. Father, I pray from, um, I pray from our meeting this morning that, that lives can be changed. That's always the goal of, of preaching, that Christians can be exhorted and challenged and helped and encouraged. And, and I'm sure in a group this size, there's always somebody that, that needs something from the Word. I believe every Christian needs something from the Word every single week. And yet there are also those who are unconverted, who are still in their unbelief, who choose to not believe, whether intentionally or not. They've not come to the place of 
belief yet. And so I pray that today your spirit would convict and convert, that you would see them saved, that we could see them uh, saved today as a result of the word of God, after a result of seeing and meeting you today, this morning. Although thousands of years later, we can still be confronted by you through the word. And so please do that this morning. I ask once again, as I have throughout the week, I pray your blessing in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. You know, they say you should never talk about religion and politics. And here we are in church talking about religion, and here the preacher goes talking about politics. And you think, that's what, that's, that's, you're just starting fights now. And I think, boy, I'm just one of those crazy people that think if we could, we could limit and have less of government, we could save all the money, and we could do kind of what the Bible describes and give according to our desires, not by force, but by, uh, by, by charity. And I think, man, if we had the social fabric that was built up the way God designed it, it would be so much more uh, um, uh, fruitful and happy and a lot more co-independence and interdependence. And I believe God's design is really the goal. And I believe the founders of America had that as their goal for what they wanted their country to be. And ultimately, we're just talking about freedom. The right to say what I please and do as I please and give to whom I please and the right to own what I own. And then as a Christian, what, that in, uh, uh, what, what the duties are entailed upon me are to be able to reach out and help the poor. And so social programs are done through a community, through a society, through a small group of communal people like a church, a group of values that are bonded together and helping one another. That's God's design that my good is is for the good of all, and, and so without government forcing that upon me, that's really what I want. You've seen this, the roundups of all the, uh, the, because of the Democratic, the presidential debates that are going on right now, there's, there's roundups of what each candidate believes, and you've seen Elizabeth Warren rising in the polls, and there's talks about what she used to be and what she is now, and what she used to be was this interesting character who wrote books like The Two Income Trap and had school voucher concepts, and it was pretty interesting that she, she disdained some of the big, big government and too many complex regulations, and we shouldn't have this in all her own writing just a few years ago, and not wanting to take on the, uh, uh, the taxpayer-funded daycare. That's a sacred cow we're not even going to touch at. These are things she said not so many years ago, and yet now she's in the running. She's changed her tune, and a lot of these stances that she used to have have flipped. You say, what is it that has changed about her? What is it about, has her mind, has she come to this extreme, has she come to this position because of, of, of logic and reason? It seems like what she used to write was logical and somewhat more reasonable than it is now. I think what it is right now is that in the past, maybe she seemed to care about others and wanted to have a plan to help other people, and and, and yet something has, has changed in the situation that has caused her to change her stances. And I'm cherry-picking her because she's the front-runner in this debate, and she's the one that's getting all the news attention. But it's like what we're seeing in the, in the shift of moral values and what we're seeing and what the politicians are promoting right now is exactly what our founding fathers were scared about. And it's exactly what they wrote about, hoping against hope that our country wouldn't devolve into a police-run state, that it wouldn't devolve into just politics for the sake of politics and power for the sake of power. And Washington and Jefferson and Ben Franklin all wrote warnings about the depravity of man 
John Adams said, you've heard this quote, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It's wholly inadequate to the government of any other. James Madison said, if Congress can employ money indefinitely for the general welfare and are the sole and supreme judges of the general welfare, they may take the care of religion into their own hands. They may appoint teachers in every state, country, and parish and, and pay them out of the public treasury. They may take into their own hands the education of children, the establishing of like manner schools throughout the union. They may assume the provision of the poor were the power of Congress to be established in the latitude contended for, it would subvert the very foundations and transmute the very nature of the limited government established by the people of America. You go, boy, if they were worried about that back then, here we are so many years later, and it's like, this is, this is crazy where we've come. And you might still be saying, well, so what? What's the point? The point is not a political platform. This is not a political platform. The point is a human nature, an open door into the hearts of human nature that even back then, it's almost like politicians have always been the same. It's almost like the tendency of human nature is to go down or to seek for more power. This is not just a new problem we're witnessing. This quest for power, to, to change my tune, to do anything that would get me more power, that seems to be kind of this this thing that we've traced all the way through history. We're talking about every government everywhere. This quest for power is the motivating force. I mean, you see it in Disney movies. You see it everywhere in all the villains that want power. Every uh, 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 terrorist has this quest for power and control and, and the country's dictators. And, and we're seeing so many of the state-run governments, this, this idea that I'm going to shut everything down because I need more power. We see that in the stories of the villains and Disney cartoons and Marvel movies and everything in between. The bad guy is always wanting more power, and he wants to control everything. And if it's not somebody trying to rule, rule the world, it's the, it's the bully on the kid's playground. He's trying to rule the playground. He's going to be the biggest one with the most power. He's going to be the one that controls it might be an overbearing husband. It might be somebody who wants control of the only microcosm he can control, and maybe that's just his family or kids. And you say, that's, this is, this is the, the quest of man is to gain more power and to hold on to the power that I have and increase my power and add to my power so that I can get more and more and more. And really, this is a timeless problem that we've seen, not only through history, but we even see it in Scripture in the verses we read where there's the political ruling force of the day. The Jews had sort of their own political system within the overarching Roman government. They had their own political governing body. They had their own priests, and the Sadducees got together in this council of the Sanhedrin, where they were the political force of each region had its own Sanhedrin. But there was one main Sanhedrin that was in the city of Jerusalem, and they were like the ones who oversaw Judaism within the, within the whole umbrella of Judaism. And the high priest was the one that was originally in Leviticus set and chosen by, by God and his family. It would pass down from generation to generation. He would be the one that would present the sacrifice for, on behalf of the people and, the, and, and go into the presence of God and do that. But it devolved into this political power situation where here they are worried about this dissident, this political dissident called Jesus. And yeah, he's doing pretty good stuff, and he's helping people, and it's really nice that, 
you would think that the politicians would be happy about him healing people, but it's like, boy, he heals on the Sabbath. He ought not do that. And that guy got his eyesight back. Ah, oh, that's okay, I guess, but he shouldn't do that on the Sabbath. And we'd think that politicians would be happy that, that their subjects could see and that they could walk now. The lame could walk. And it's like they should be happy about, boy, this guy is dead, and now he's alive. Does he pay taxes? All right, we're happy about that. And it sh they should be happy about these things. And you think, wait a minute, if it was just about, I'm one of the people, I'm here for you, I'm just another one of you, then, then we don't see that in Scripture, and many times we don't see that even in our own politics. But again, this isn't about the politics. This is just a glimpse into our human nature. And look at verse number 45. They saw that something great had happened. A man had been raised from the dead. But verse 46, actually, then some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Oh, not that dissident, political, upheaval guy, Jesus again. How dare he heal somebody from the dead? I mean, that's a good thing and all, but we don't like him because uh, uh, this, is, this is not good for our stance. And the politicians, it seems like even back then, were, man, we're for the people, we're one of you, I'm, I'm just like one of you. Disregard my lake house, disregard the millions I make. I'm just one of you, I'm working for the middle class, I'm one of you, and yet it's not that we see that they're one of the people, but verse number 47, here's their real motivator. They, they gathered the chief priests and Pharisees. They gathered this council and said, what do we? For this man doth many miracles. He's, he's doing all these miracles and he's effective. And if we, verse 48, if we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. Oh, great. What are we going to do? Everyone's going to believe on him and then we'll lose our standing with the government. We'll lose our political power. And they're worried not about the welfare of their subjects, of the people that they're in control of, so to speak, that they think they're in control of. They, they think we're going to lose our power. We're going to lose our system of government. And, oh, the worst thing of all is not that they're being healed, but that they're believing in this guy, Jesus. They're believing in this guy, Jesus. I'm reading the book to my kids. We've been going through the Chronicles of Narnia. We're just on the last battle. That's the last book. It's kind of an allegory of the book of Revelation. And uh, there's, there's some false doctrines in there. There's some open, open God theology that's incorrect in there. But I like the, the picturesque way it kind of brings you through what the end times are going to be of this new world that Jesus um, is going to create. And he does that through this beautiful picture of the last battle. And they've been fighting their way out. The good guys have been fighting against the bad guys. And then this, there's this stable there in this night scene battle. And there's a fire right in front of the stable. And the bad guys kind of corral the good guys over to this open door in the stable. And they think they've got this trap set inside the stable. So they open the door, push the good guys in, and slam the door closed, thinking with our soldier on the inside, he's going to kill them. And that'll be the end of those bad guys. It turns out that when they get shoved into this stable, the story takes a twist and they end up in the middle of this meadow, this sunny, bright, sunny day. It was the middle of the night. It's a bright, sunny day in this beautiful grass flowing meadow and this just wonderful, wonderful, almost utopia system that they're in. And it's almost like, boy, this is, this is wonderful. This is great. I can't believe we've been brought 
into this setting. This is so beautiful. And they meet Aslan, and he's there, and he's the king. He's the lion king, and he's the one that has brought them out of their trials and into this situation. But then the battle is still, they can, they can still see the door there in the middle of this meadow. It's just kind of this freestanding stable door that's there. On the other side is more meadow, but they could go up to this door and look through the cracks in the door, and they can still see the scene where they just had been. It's the night scene, the fire is there, the battle is still going on. And there was a scene where the dwarves had turned on the good guys, and they were the bad guys, and they get into the fight a little bit, and the, 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 the others kind of corral them into the, the, the stable door as well, and shove this whole crowd of dwarves into this, into this stable door and slam the door behind them. And it's the strangest thing where everybody's standing around watching this take place, where these dwarves come tumbling into this, what, this just through this stable door that's there. They look at the scene and these dwarves don't seem to notice that they're outside. They don't seem to notice the grass fields. They don't seem to notice that there's, there's wonderful sunlight and this wonderful thing. And the others are scratching their heads saying, Aslan, can't you make them see? Can't you make them understand? This is a beautiful scene that we have here. And he made the point to something of the effect that they'll only believe what they want to believe. They'll only see what they choose to see. They'll only see as far as they desire to see, and what they've desired to see is not the beauty of Aslan, but they've chosen to close their eyes to all this beauty that I've said. They said, but show one more sign, can you please? And he lays out this beautiful feast in front of them, all this roasted food and fresh cut fruit, and these, these uh, beautiful goblets, everything is laid out of a feast for them, and they, they go to take a bite, and they spit it out and say, what's this turnip, and what's this mule water here, and what is this garbage you've put into my mouth? And it's as if they're eating hay and the dregs of what the actual stable is. And you say, why don't you see? Why can't you understand? Why don't you just believe in in the allegory is in believing in God, and why don't they choose to see that? And all the while throughout the story, you saw them earlier saying, the dwarves are for the dwarves, choosing their unbelief instead. And what they miss out on in the end of the story is this wonderful ending of what they never even saw coming. You might have been through the Noah exhibit in Kentucky. You might have seen those, this life-size exhibits everywhere. And, and what they do is they take you through the evidence of uh, what the Noah's Ark could have been. And it's not about, well, I don't believe because I can't see evidence. Boy, there's a whole exhibit full of evidence over and over. Many of the people that go there and try to discount that, it's not because they have different evidence from us and, and they're smarter than us. And so Christians are buffoons and it's just atheism is the way and logic and reason is the way. No, really, it's not about giving me more evidence. It's about this root issue of what we're talking about, of unbelief. A willful unbelief of what is there. One mom said, or one six-year-old daughter said to her mom when she's coming into region, well, I don't believe in anything I can't understand. And if I can't, if I can't explain it, then I'm not going to believe it. And the mom said, all right, explain airplanes. And the daughter goes, oh, okay, I can't believe, I can't understand that either. 
It's not, life is not just made up of what we can experience and what we can understand and what we can explain away. I watched a debate this week between two Christians and two atheists, and the, the atheists were so angry and they were so, they were so livid about the Christians. And over and over he just said, show me, show me, show me. I want evidence. I want, I want facts. I want your evidence base. And it will always be resulting in in science. If I can't observe it, I'm not going to believe it. There's nothing except chemical reactions that are going on in my brain, and so I won't believe anything that I don't sense for myself. Morality and good and evil, those are just social constructs, and I will never be able to know if it's okay to eat a baby or if it's okay to, to, uh, uh, to, if a society rises and calls one thing evil, well, I guess if the majority says, then I guess that makes it evil. And if another society rises and calls it good, then I guess it's okay. They came to the point in that debate where the Christians were asking the atheists, could you ever see the point where if, if a group of elite humans somehow evolved into this race of people that thought it was okay to start eating humans, and they could ration their way out of it. And, and they could rationalize, and everybody that was too dumb to figure out their rationality just got eaten like cattle. If you're saying we're nothing like cattle, we're just rational beings, that's what separates us from animals and plants. If the only thing separating us is the fact that we're a little bit smarter than them, then what happens if somebody gets smarter than you? Can they kill you and eat you? Would that be evil? And the atheist goes, well... It depends. It depends. What does it depend on? Are you setting aside all common logic, common reasoning, to say that, that something as obviously evil as that, with no foundation, with no basis for our belief, with just the chemical reactions of stardust bumping into one another, if that's all we are as evolved beings, then just like Paul said, if I in this, in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most miserable. What a worthless life. If all we are is just bumping through life. Now, you have to understand, we're fallible people. We make mistakes. You get tricked by a magician's sleight of hand. You can be tricked by your own rationality. You can be tricked by your own emotions, by your own senses. Your eyes can see things that your mind knows doesn't work, but, but you've experienced it, and the magician has tricked you into it, and, and you have to believe it because you've seen it. No, 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 no. Our lives aren't based on just what we can see and experience and touch and feel. There's so much more than that. There's, there's, there's scriptures, too, that say, look, even if, like the man that was in hell and lifted up his eyes, send somebody back to tell my brothers. And the sad response was, well, even if somebody came back from the dead and they were evidenced as, well, they used to be dead and now they're preaching the gospel to me, they said, no, you wouldn't even believe them. Send somebody back, they'll really believe them. I, I, I think they need to just experience somebody coming back from the dead. It's not about your experiencing God to convince you into God. God's never going to convince you with enough evidence. You have all the evidence you need right now to either believe or not believe God. And it's not about a pile of evidence you're trying to heap up to rationalize through your mind. This is a spiritual decision that God is calling you to, this decision of belief. These people had seen the miracles. They saw the man walking around who was once in the grave. They saw the miracle take place of Lazarus walking around. And yet some still did not believe and went their way and talked to the Pharisee. 
How could you not believe the evidence before your eyes? Well, because it's not about the evidence. It's about their hearts of choosing to not give up the power that they had been going for, not give up what they had in their, in their grasp. And we don't want to lose our place. We don't want to lose this, this power that we have in verse number 48. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. Romans oversaw this, and it's not like they really cared about the people. It's not like the debates that were going on were about, well, it is kind of good that he's healing people and helping people. be. It's not about what helps other people, and many times we see that in our politics today. It's not about, it's not about saving kids after all, is it? Is it really about pushing down your politics through legislation? Because that's what it was for them in verse 49, one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, you know nothing at all. He insults this, this group, mostly of Sadducees, which they didn't like. Verse 50, nor consider it expedient for us. This, this, I, I can't believe you're, you're debating about morality when we know what we're supposed to do, this high priest says. He said unto them, uh, verse 15, one man should die for the people and the whole nation perish not. They just needed somebody that was calloused enough to say out loud what they all wanted to happen. You know what? Let's just kill this dissident and we'll finally have peace in the land. We need somebody to just make the political decision to get rid of him once and for all. And once the leader said that, then they could all rally around that. They could say, all right, this is our chance to sacrifice the one and then we'll bring peace back and we'll get to maintain our control and the people won't have this uprising anymore, and Rome won't come in and take away our power. It's almost like he's, he's treating Jesus like a, like a sacrifice fly ball. You know, in baseball, if the bases, you have a runner on the base, and you have a batter that's up at home plate, what he can do is he can hit the ball high into the air, and the runner can't run until the guy in the outfield has caught the ball. But if he hits it high enough and far enough away, then he knows I'll get an out. It's okay if I get the out. As long as, after the outfielder catches the ball, he can't throw it to the next guy to tag the runner out of the base. And the runner advances, or he scores a run. And the, the idea is called a sacrifice pop fly, or sacrifice fly ball, meaning, all right, we'll give up an out, and that'll hurt us a little bit, but at least we'll get the run. And it's almost like Caiaphas is figuring and figuring, not about morality, not about what's right and wrong, but based on my power... Maybe we can sacrifice this guy's life, and, and we'll get a run out of it. We'll get some benefit out of this. We'll quell the uprising, and we'll calm things down a little bit. This isn't a question of right and wrong anymore. This is a question of how much they can hold their power. And so what he said through his statement, we'll give one in order to save our nation. What he said, John says as he's writing the account of Caiaphas talking about it, he says what he said was actually prophecy coming right out of his mouth about what God intended even more than what he intended through his own words. You ever say something accidentally profound? Like, oh, I didn't even mean to say it that well. I put in the bulletin note, you try to explain God to a five-year-old, and it's like, wow, I kind of impressed myself in what I said. Because you're thinking in a different way. I put the, the jokes in there. These aren't meant to be profound, but Microsoft Word says accept change. You know, 
I need to accept change in my life, and I'm starting a new, I'm starting a new uh, uh, venture on life. It's not one of the kids said, Dad, some people just don't life good. Say, that's about right, son. That's actually true. Some people don't. There was a sign that was posted on a building. It said, please do not sit on the fence. And then the sign below it said, polling station, temporary polling station. Please do not sit on the fence. They didn't mean that as a way to go together, but it's almost like this accidental profundity that came out of the situation. And when, Chia when Caiaphas was saying these, he was saying, all right, we'll kill this man in order to get some political peace. But what actually took place, verse 51 this spake he, not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. That, that, that the statement he made was just a political statement, but it had spiritual significance. That 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says, when it's talking about Jesus being the sacrifice for our sin, John said, in his other book, he is the propitiation for our sins. He's the go-between for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This, this idea that Jesus Christ's death would not just be a political salve to take care of the uprising. It would be the redemptive moment that God uses in the eternal plan of the history of the world in order to redeem all men to his own. I listened to an interview of Meghan McCain just this week, and she talked about being married and, and going through probably the toughest year of her life, losing her, her dad and then having a miscarriage, and you might have followed her if you follow politics or some things in society. You may have seen that, but she said, I'm married to a man. He's actually an Anglican man, but she said he quotes scripture to me all the time, and I love that he's my rock, he's my strength, and through the worst year of my life, he's brought me through this because he just has such a firm belief in God that God has everything under his control, and that if it were not for him and if it were not for God bringing me through, I don't know where I'd be after probably the roughest year of my life. To know that God is in control of all the situations of my life is the most precious and the most satisfying and the most um, peaceful moment of my life. For God to look at, I mean, for a reader to look at a situation like this and say, uh-oh, you're in, you're in trouble. Now the bad guys are going to kill Jesus. What are we going to do? And it's not like God is up there wringing his hands going, I did not see this coming. I thought he'd heal people, and I thought he would help them, and I thought when he healed people, they would all flock to him. And it's not like God is saying, oh, boy, maybe if he heals another blind guy, that people will like him, and then they'll be okay. It's not like God is nervous about this. It's like God is saying, you know what? This has been part of my plan the whole time. There's no problem in these plans because that's been the intention all along the way. And we see that all, all through Scripture that God is the, always the one that's been in control. When Daniel was, was, was brought, through the, brought away by the Babylonian Empire, it seemed like a terrible moment in his life. But God used Daniel to, to show God even to wicked Nebuchadnezzar, where they even realized, you know what? God is the one who rules in the affairs of men, Nebuchadnezzar said. And, and Habakkuk knew it when he was writing the prophecies, going, how come God's not punishing Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians for hurting God's people? And, and Habakkuk wrote a book of encouragement saying, look, God knows what he's doing. Trust him. He will resolve this in the end. There's no problem here. 
when Balaam, the story of Balaam, pastor just preached through that probably about last year when Balaam came and he opened his mouth to say one thing, God turned it into something better, something completely different and better. At the end of the story of Joseph, when he came to the end of his life after his own brothers turned on him, threw him in a pit, sold him into slavery, they thought he was dead. Turns out at the end of the story, he's the right-hand man to Pharaoh. He's the one that saves not only Egypt, but all of the Middle East because of his foresight based on God's dreams for them. And when his own brothers come to him at the end of his life, Joseph said these words, you know what? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And what you thought was going to be this terrible situation and what you even intended to be a terrible situation, I've realized that God is in control of my life. I don't have to worry about the situations of my life because even though you meant it to be a bad thing, God actually turned it into a good thing. Like he's in control like that. He's okay like that. The rest, uh, 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 the rest of life can be handled by God and I can simply trust him. And the rest of this text is almost where you read it and go, oh no, Jesus... Uh, the bad guys are going to start attacking him and they're going to hunt him down and they're going to hunt down the followers of Jesus. But listen, as, as much as they tried to thwart Jesus, as much as they tried to push against Jesus, God used their very words to reveal his redemptive plan for them. God used the actual horrible situation of them putting this death sentence, this wanted poster up on the wall, Jesus. And now from then on, we're going to hunt him and we're going to kill him. And he's going to be the one that is sacrificed for the people. And God says, yeah, he will be sacrificed for the people, but not the way you intended. I've actually got a bigger plan for you. I've got something way better for you because I'm in control. And you might be fretting and worrying about politics and the election. You listen to all the bad news, and that gives you ulcers, and it makes you nervous, and it make, gives you angst, and you're like, I don't know about what I'm going to do with my family and my house, and I hope I don't lose the value. Listen, I want all those things for my house, too, and my career. I, I want all of those things as well, humanly speaking. But I'm not going to get so caught up in this life that I lose the sight of God saying, look, I've got it. What you mean for evil, I can even turn that into something that's good. What you mean for something that's, that's terrible, I'm working all the time on your behalf. And I love you and I'm on your side and I care about you and I'm working things for your good. Just love me and be called according to my purpose for your life. And you say, but, but how do some people arrive at that, at that intimate relationship with God? I want to be able to trust God like that. I want to be able to be secure in God like that. And I know Christians who don't really seem to care about politics. They don't really seem to fret about what's going to happen with their retirement accounts or with their house prices. They don't seem to care. Doesn't that seem unwise? Don't they seem just aloof about life? Why, why, why aren't they more concerned? Can't they understand that this next year is going to be a turmoil year? Well, maybe if you have that attitude, sure, it's going to be bad. But the whole point about Christians is that, look, I don't have to trust my life to Trump versus Warren versus Biden. I don't have to trust and base my whole life based on the politics of the hour. I can base my life off of God. It's not a cop-out statement. That's not a statement of taking my hands off the wheel and Jesus take the wheel. I'm not even going to think for myself from now on. I'm just going to let God run my life for me. That's not what it is at all. Christianity is not about setting aside reason for the sake of reason. No, no, no. We love God with all our heart. All our soul, yes, our emotional love of God, but also all our mind. 
God's given us rationality. God's given us great thoughts. And, and, and yet, at the same time, I'm not concerned about that. There's this one distinguishing factor between the two sides. And it's not evidence. It's not who has the right arguments. It's not philosophy. It's not who's right and who's going to win the argument. And it, it, it's none of those things. The one distinguishing factor between the two groups of people in this story is this word called belief. There were those who believed Jesus Christ. And they were the ones who were secure in following him. And yes, their lives seemed to be overturned, but John himself wrote, oh man, not even Caiaphas understood what he was talking about when he said these words. And although it looked like this horrible situation in their future, John says, you know what? It, it actually turned out God had it under control all the time. And there were those who ran to the Pharisees and said, oh no, Pharisees, he's healing people. What are we going to do? And the Pharisees said, oh no, I'm not sure what we're going to do. Let's just kill him. We'll get rid of him. And they're all concerned about their power and their life and their world and their control. And it's not about evidence. It's not about what Jesus has actually done. It's not about, well, preacher, prove Jesus to me. It's not about that at all. For Christians in here, you know, I can rest secure in knowing Jesus is Lord. For those others who are facing Jesus and faced with the evidence and faced with this decision, I have to believe or not believe. This is my choice I'm going to make today. Today, you're making this choice of continuing in unbelief or choosing to believe. That's a choice, not based on evidence, but your own volition. This is yours. The Bible just says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. That's all salvation is, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. Yeah, but how do I know? How do I know? How can I trust God? He gives you pretty much the simple basics right there. Just believe that God is who he claims to be. Believe that he can take your sins upon himself. Believe that he has paid the price for your sin. Believe that. Believe that. And confess it with your mouth. Come to the place of admitting that my way may not be right. I'm fallible. I'm broken as a man. I don't have all the answers. I can't rely on science. I can't rely on rationality. I can't merely rely on my own being because I know, I know I can, if I can be duped by a magician, I know I can't trust my own senses and my own, my own, my own brain to rationalize God. If he is who he claims to be, the omnipotent, eternal God, the creator of the universe who sent his son Jesus to die for me, then my choice today is to either believe that or reject that. I'll conclude with Spurgeon's words on this topic. He preached a whole sermon on unbelief and said, let me apply this chiefly to the unconverted. They often see great works of God done with their eyes, but they don't eat thereof. A crowd of people have come here this morning to see with their eyes, but I doubt whether all of them eat. Men cannot eat with their eyes, for if they could, most would be well fed. And spiritually, persons cannot feed simply with their ears, nor simply by looking at the preacher. And so we find the majority of congregations come just to see and let us hear what this babbler would say, this reed shaken in the wind that they said about John the Baptist. But they have no faith. They come and they see and see and see and never eat. There's some on the front there who get converted and someone down below who's called by sovereign grace. Some poor sinner is weeping under a sense of his blood guiltiness. Another is crying for mercy to God. Another is saying, have mercy upon me, a sinner. 
A great work is going on in this chapel. But some of you don't know anything about it. You have no work going on in your hearts. And why? Because you think it's impossible. You think God is not at work. He's not promised to work for you who do not honor him. Unbelief makes you sit here in times of revival and the outpouring of God's grace unmoved, uncalled, unsaved. Oh, the hell of hells will be to see your friends in heaven and ourselves lost. I beseech you, my hearers, by the death of Christ, by his agony and bloody sweat, by his cross and passion, by all that's holy, by all that's sacred in heaven and earth, by all that's solemn in time or eternity, by all that is horrible in hell or glorious in heaven, by that awful thought forever. I beseech you, lay these things to heart. And remember that if you are damned, it will be unbelief that damns you. If you're lost, it will be because ye believed not on Christ. And if ye perish, this shall be the bitterest drop of gall, that ye did not trust in the Savior. If it's mere facts you're concerned about, the reality of eternity is not going to be rationed away. There's a God who rules in the affairs of men. And you're faced with this one decision today that distinguishes the two groups of people. Do you believe or continue in unbelief? That's the question of this day. That's why God brought you here to church this morning. That's, the, that's the, the message that you're faced with as you're confronted by the word of God, by Jesus Christ, by a life that is real. Believe him or not. Stand if you would, please. We're extending this invitation, this chance for you to respond to that. God is calling you. God is bringing you out of your unbelief. God is asking you to choose to believe in that. We're going to sing 297 in our hymns. Don't hide behind the hymnal. The song says it well. Open my eyes that I may see. God, would you show me and reveal yourself today? You see others who are, who are wrapped with God, who are, who've seen and encountered God, and they seem to know God, and you might want that. Really, all we're talking about is belief. Can you trust God today? Can you believe that he is who he claims to be, that Jesus is God in the flesh, and that he's come for you, and that he has come to give you eternal life? Can you believe that? Would you give your life to him? I'm going to pray. And then when I pray, this invitation means that we're just inviting you to believe in him. We want to show you from the scripture what that means. We don't want to give you Baptist doctrine, but Bible doctrine. We want to teach you what the Bible has to say about that. So... I'm going to pray. Brother Grissom's going to begin singing. And while we sing, then you're invited to come. Have some help from that. Our Father, we're thankful for the time in the Word this morning. Dear God, I pray. If someone is in here between that balance of heaven and hell, I pray that you give them the, 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 the courage to at least seek you, and to at least take that step of, of searching for you and of coming to you and of being willing to believe in you. Not out of rationality, not out of trying to weigh the evidence. God, we, we've all seen the same facts. We all know the same things, but the thing that separates us is belief versus unbelief. I pray for some in here who need you, that you'll draw them to you. I pray for Christians in here who've come to you. I pray that they'll be encouraged to know that you rule in the affairs of men. Dear God, would you work in our midst this morning? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. And as Brother